The Torah content from now through Pesach has been sponsored by the Kofsky family in loving memory of Adira, who loved big ideas and asking big questions. Hello, I am Rabbi Matt Schneeweiss, and this is the Stoic Jew Podcast, where we explore the relationship between Judaism and Stoicism. Today's reading is also from Seneca's letter number 123, which we have been reading for the last two days. Uh, again, this is seems like a good letter. I, I didn't set out to read an entire letter, but uh, this one has been pretty uh, pretty worthwhile so far. So just to refresh our memory, yesterday he was talking about how when how you can gauge your own progress through either artificial means by like setting up a test ahead of time and then seeing how you do, or by spontaneous experiences where you suddenly realize that you've made progress. And he was advocating for the latter. So let me just read the last sentence from yesterday and then rev into this new point here. When the spirit has prepared itself beforehand, has called on itself in advance to show endurance, it is not so clear just how much real strength it possesses. The surest indications are the ones it gives on the spur of the moment, when it views annoyances in a manner not merely unruffled but serene, when it refrains from flying into a fit of temper or picking a quarrel with someone, when it sees to everything it requires by refraining from hankering after this and that, reflecting that one of its habits may miss a thing, but its own real self need never do so. Now here's the new part. Until we have begun to go without them, we fail to realize how unnecessary many things are. We've been using them not because we needed them, but because we had them. Look at the number of things we buy because others have bought them or because they're in most people's houses. One of the causes of the troubles that beset us is the way our lives are guided by the example of others. Instead of being set to rights by reason, we're seduced by convention. There are things that we shouldn't wish to imitate if they were done by only a few, but when a lot of people have started doing them, we follow along, as though a practice became more respectable by becoming more common. Once they have become general, mistaken ways acquire in our minds the status of correct ones. Nobody travels now without a troop of Numidian horsemen riding ahead of him and a host of runners preceding his carriage. One feels ashamed not to have men with which to hustle oncoming travelers off the road and to show there's a gentleman coming by the cloud of dust they raise. Everybody nowadays has mules to carry his crystal ware, his murine vessels, and other articles engraved by the hands of master craftsmen. One is ashamed to be seen to have only the kind of baggage which can be jolted around without coming to any harm. Everyone's pages ride along with their faces smeared with cream in case the sun or the cold should spoil their delicate complexions. One is ashamed if there is no member of one's retinue of boys whose healthy cheeks calls for protection with cosmetics. Okay, so we're going to pause there for one second here. So this is something that I feel like people do have an awareness of on one level uh, that um, I think, especially in the realm of social media, when people are um, putting their, uh, you know, artificial an artificial construction of their best lives forward, or so I hear. <laughs> My social media is kind of not not uh, not so much like this, but I've heard that there are people who will be, um, you know, who will, will will have this problem where they all they see around them is glamorous looking um, life experiences and friends and beauty and objects and you know possessions and and everything like that. And then that will make them feel as though they're somehow lacking something, uh, you know, and uh, and they'll they'll hanker after these things, not because they've actually decided that they're good, but because they just see it and it's convention, you know? Um, and obviously he, Seneca gave Roman examples, but you can plug in your own examples here. So, you know, that's well known. It's well known that with, uh, you know, the rise of advertising in, I guess the mid 1900s, uh, you know, the, when, when advertise, you know, when, when, um, uh, companies started, you know, overtly playing to people's fantasies, uh, and using psychology to manipulate people's uh, desires and make them feel like they need things that they really don't. 
you know, that's become a thing that's only gotten more extreme since, uh, you know, uh, in, as technology has progressed. So we're aware of those things. But what I want, what I thought was interesting here is this phrase of um, two phrases. Until we have begun to go without them, we fail to realize how en- how unnecessary many things are. So that's one phrase. And again, I think that this is uh, this complements a point I, I made yesterday, which is that it's very easy to look at at certain Stoic statements and and assume that they're advocating asceticism. You know that rejection of material or physical pleasures is a good in its own right. And that's not what he's saying here. I mean, maybe there are other statements where where the Stokes make that point. But here he's basically saying, like, why would you tie yourself to to something if you need something or if it actually brings you pleasure? So go for it, you know. But if the only reason why you are attached to this thing is because you feel like it's necessary, that's a compulsion. That's not a pleasure, you know. And And as a means of testing your relationship to the thing, try going without them. Again, this is his... Um, you know, this is how the whole letter started off, is that he got home, he was used to having really good bread, and he didn't have any good bread. And because, uh, you know, he found himself confronted with bad bread, that kind of forced him to examine his own relationship to bread, his own relationship to pleasure. Um, and, uh, and you know, how much of the pleasure is determined by his interstate and how much is determined by the thing itself. So, in other words, it's not deprivation of, of, of pleasure or or physicality per se, it's using that as a means of self-knowledge and of really, you know, managing your own psyche in a manner that actually leads to more pleasure. Um, so so it's, it, it looks like asceticism, but it's not. The second phrase that jumped out at me here is, one of the causes of the troubles that beset us is the way our lives are guided by the example of others instead of being set to rights by reason. Sorry, instead of being set to rights by reason, we're seduced by convention. So one area that I've seen this play out in, in mostly as a high school teacher, uh, but also I've seen this in yeshiva, both when I was in yeshiva, seen it in myself and other people. And then now that I am, uh, you know, the director of student learning at YBT, um, and I'm seeing this in other people as well, is that, that people feel like, um, like their own, not in matters of physicality, but in their, in matters of, of real good uh, of of development, you know, in in their learning or in their Judaism or in their life, you know, people feel like they have to measure their own progress by other people's milestones, um, and uh, and if let's say, for example, other people are making progress at a certain rate, then then they feel like oh, there's something wrong with me if I'm not making progress at that rate, and. And again, just going back to what I was talking about yesterday, when I was in yeshiva, I struggled with this a lot. Um, and uh, and despite the fact that I, I didn't start my Jewish education until much later than all of my peers, um, and you know, again, it, it's this feeling, it's this feeling that that it's this relative value system where you are, you're, you become upset at yourself, not because of anything that is actually based on the objective reality of who you are or where you're at in life, but because other people are somewhere else and are further away, you know, further ahead of you. And, uh, and then that makes you feel self-conscious that you're somehow not progressing. I actually didn't plan on reading this. Let me just find something here. Um, so I, um, I, uh, I, I had a teacher in third grade, Ms. Wilkinson. Uh, and I, uh, I reconnected with her maybe sometime. I'm trying to think how many years after third grade, it's gotta be at least 20 years after third grade. Uh, 
And I, uh, I found her on social media and I emailed her to let her know of a lesson that she taught in the beginning of third grade uh, that really had an impact on me. Um, and uh, actually, I'm, I'm just going to read this letter uh, in its entirety uh, because I think it's relevant to this point here. Uh, Dear Ms. Wilkinson, this is Matt Schneeweiss. Do you remember me, the little half Chinese kid with glasses? Uh, you were uh, you were my third grade teacher at Gilbert Elementary School in Yakima, Washington from 1992 to 1993. You also occasionally babysat for me and my young brother, uh, Johnny. Judging, uh, blah, blah, blah. All right, anyway, personal stuff then. Anyway, even if you don't remember me, I want to thank you for a lesson you taught me at the very beginning of third grade. I don't remember much of anything I learned in third grade or in any of my elementary school classes for that matter, but I do remember this lesson very clearly. Although the principle you taught me didn't affect me then, it has had a profound effect on me in recent years. In fact, it has become one of the foundations of my life. It was the first day of third grade. You told us all to take out a piece of paper and crayons, and you instructed us to draw a flower. After we finished, you posted all of our pictures side by side on, on the top of the chalkboard so that each of us could see what our classmates drew. You then taught us the idea behind the exercise. You said something like this, though probably not in this language. Each and every one of your flowers is different and special. Some are tall and some are short. Some are white like snow and some are very colorful. Some grow fast and some take their time. Some have many petals and some have only a few. But you know what? That's okay. Each flower grows in its own way and you can't compare one to the other. The same is true for all of you. Each one of you is different and special in your own unique way. You have different strengths and weaknesses and you will all grow and develop in different ways. But that's okay. You shouldn't compare yourself to the other kids. The important thing is that you be yourself and grow in your own unique way. If you do that, then each of you will grow into your own beautiful flower, end quote. Uh, so I'm still reading the letter though. Who knows whether what I understood what you were saying back then, but it must have registered somewhere in my little eight-year-old mind. Otherwise, I wouldn't have remembered it. The more, uh, the more I learn and the more I develop, the more I realize how important the message of that lesson really is. I've had plenty of struggles with competition and unhealthy self-evaluation based on relative value systems. I've wasted time and endured much anguish over my failure to measure up to what I feel I have to be based on the explicit and implicit expectations of my peers and my authority figures. Time and again, I have fallen into the trap of estimating my own self-worth based on the accomplishments of others. Only in recent years have I come to realize the profundity of the truth contained in that simple lesson you taught me in third grade. Each person must develop in accordance with his or her own unique potentialities. Sure, it's very difficult to accurately assess oneself in order to determine one's true limitations and capabilities. Moreover, one must constantly check and recheck this assessment throughout one's life, entire lifetime in order to ensure that it remains as accurate and realistic as possible at every age, sorry, every stage. As difficult as it may be, the reward for following this path is worth it. Freedom from the conflict, anxiety, and stress of living up to unrealistic standards, freedom from the pressure to be someone who you are not, and freedom to actualize one's own unique talent in accordance with one's own nature. A lot has happened since third grade. Among the relevant highlights, I converted to Orthodox Judaism, studied in a rabbinic seminary, and I'm now a full-time high school teacher in New York. Um, and blah, blah, blah. I go through my stuff. I've tried to incorporate your lesson about the flowers not only into my life, but into, the into my educational philosophy. I hope that I can instill that principle in all of my students so that they can begin to liberate themselves from the shackles of relative values and begin to live a life of freedom and real personal development. Thank you so much for teaching me. Your former student, Match Nayweiss. So I, I meant what I said, that <laughs> that uh, I, I, I you know don't know exactly what I understood at the time, but somehow that lesson was geared perfectly towards my third grade mind, and it really instilled this in me. And looking at Seneca right now, again, I think Seneca was talking about material objects, you know, and being seduced by convention in terms of what people have. 
and feeling that you lack something because everyone else has it and you don't. But I think this equally applies to real values and to learning and to development and and perfection and you know and and life milestones. You know, I see people freaking out because they haven't decided on a career yet or they haven't you know started dating yet or you know I, I uh, or, or they have you know uh, uh, you know personal struggles. And uh, and not to diminish the struggles, but but and not not to diminish the effort that it takes to to break out of this mentality. But you know, I think that we <laughs> we who listen to this podcast uh, uh, by f- the fact that we listen to this podcast um, or read you know uh, the writings of the Stoics uh, or learn Torah, I think that uh, we would be doing ourselves a disservice if we limited Seneca's lesson to. Um, to material objects, and we really have to think about how broadly this applies, and how much are how much extra anguish are we creating for ourselves by um, by through this relative value system of comparing ourselves to others and being seduced by by convention. Um, now, I do I, I intended to read on, but I think we're already at our length, uh, our, our average episode length. Yeah, just a, a teaser for tomorrow. In the next episode, or in the next part of the letter. Um, Seneca talks about how to, how practically to avoid getting sucked into this trap, uh, which is going to be very, uh, very relevant, obviously for this. So if you're interested in how to do that, um, listen to tomorrow's episode. And, uh, if you're listening to this today, uh, maybe, uh, think about it for yourself. What do you think he's going to say? Uh, what do you think the way is to break free of this? That is it for today's episode. If you've gained from what you've learned here today and would like to support my production of even more Torah content, please consider contributing to my Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Rabbi Weiss. Link is in the description. Thank you to my listeners for listening, and thank you to my patrons for supporting my efforts to make Torah ideas available and accessible to everyone.